Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Watch ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. For what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back all way. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the, the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the firstfruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. But if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, 
and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, and I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Disregard the noise as best as you can. That's all I can say. I will try to elevate my voice in the preaching of uh, God's Word today so as to help you uh, in uh, uh, overcoming the distractions that are in the background there. Our text this Lord's Day is from Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Therein we find these words, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. <clears throat> Why ultimately do the circumstances in your life fall out the way that they do? Is there a grand uh, purpose or design for all that happens in the world? Who governs nations and individuals, stars and planets, every event in history and every being in the universe? There may be many responses, dear ones, to these questions, but I have selected four which, if not specifically believed or in various ways practiced at times, even by those who profess to be Christians. The first particular response that may be given is this. Man is in control of his own destiny. Man rules life. But is it not rather obvious that the plans of man fall all of the time? They fail all of the time? Does man decide who will be his parents? Or what nationality he will be? 
Does man determine precisely how long he will live upon this earth? Can man control nature, such as hurricanes, drought, tornadoes, floods, or earthquakes? Who is in control? Certainly is not man, as we find even in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5 and verse 7. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, very clearly makes the statement that it is not man who is in control. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. A second response that may be given as to who governs nations and who controls the circumstances of our life is this. Fate is in control. There is no rational or purposeful plan. Everything just happens. Whatever will be, will be. But practical fatalists live each day, dear ones, upon the assumption that the sun will rise Instead, just as it did yesterday. They assume that the law of gravity will keep their feet firmly anchored to the ground and that two plus two equals four will be the same tomorrow just as it was today and as it was yesterday. Fate cannot be in control for there is an established order that exists and laws which all men use every day and expect to use in the future. In the fatalist system, progress in knowledge would be impossible, for nothing would remain the same from day to day. It would be like trying to make sense out of what I was saying if every five seconds I spoke a different language, like what we hear in this other room. It is obvious that fate is not in control. In fact, we find in the Word of God in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10, very clearly that fate is not in control, where we find these words, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Well, the third response that may be given is that Satan is in control. The evil in the world, the catastrophes, the wars, the murders, etc., all point to the fact that Satan must control all that happens or a majority of ha what happens in this world. The Bible does speak indeed of Satan as being an evil and a powerful being, but the Bible speaks of Satan being a created being, and that all of his power is delegated to him. He cannot act on his own, and when he tempted Job, you'll recall, he did not tempt Job without first seeking God's permission just as he did when he tempted Peter to deny the Lord. The Lord said that Satan had sought permission 
from him to sift Peter like wheat. Now, dear ones, if Satan is sovereign, the question must be asked, why could he not keep the Lord Jesus Christ in the grave? For the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ spelled the doom and the destruction of Satan. Who is in control? Well, certainly not Satan. We find in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, that the devil, the false prophet, and the beast are all cast into the lake of fire. There we see that Satan clearly is not sovereign, for the Lord God Almighty will cast him into hell itself. Well, the fourth and the true response to who is in control is the triune God of the Bible, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is in control. He alone is sovereign. The Lord God Almighty knows all things, created all things, planned and determined all things, and controls all things for His, dear ones, for His good pleasure. This is the explicit testimony of God Himself in both the Old and the New Testaments. We find in Psalm 115, verse 3, the following words. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. <clears throat> Dear ones, it may be your profession today that the one true living God revealed in Scripture is absolutely sovereign over everything that exists. But do you live your life from day to day as though this is true? Are you living as a practical humanist that man is in control? Or as a practical fatalist, no one's in control? Or as a practical Satanist, the Satan's in control? Or are you living as a practical Christian? The practical Christian life that God is in control. This Lord's Day, let us fall upon our faces before the Almighty God and renew our faith in Him as absolutely sovereign over all His creation and over every circumstance, every detail of your life. Let us repent of our sin where we have in word or deed professed or lived as though the Lord was not absolutely sovereign over all circumstances of our lives. Today, dear ones, we shall consider Proverbs 21, 1, and shall answer the following two questions. Whose heart? Whose heart is in the hand of the Lord? And secondly, how far does God's control extend? First of all, then, whose heart is in the hand of the Lord? The explicit answer to the question is that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Solomon does not intend here to deny that the hearts of all men, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, married or unmarried, are in the hand of the Lord. He mentions the king because if the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, then surely the hearts of all other men subordinate to the king are in the hand of the Lord. This is actually an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the king, then everybody else under him. 
it is perhaps more difficult for us to fully appreciate how this statement would likely have impacted the people living at that particular time, 3,000 years ago, when Solomon penned these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Needless to say, the kings in general at the time of Solomon had far more power and authority than do kings, presidents, or prime ministers today. Kings at that time did not usually have a congress or parliament or senate with which to share power. They may have had counselors, but generally they ruled supreme over the affairs of men, delegating to those beneath them authority to carry out their wishes. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 14, Solomon reminds us of this truth when he says, The wrath of a king is as a messenger of death. And when he says again in Proverbs 25, 3, the heaven for height and the earth for depth and the heart of the king is unsearchable. The king's heart is unsearchable. In other words, because of his authority and his power to rule solely by himself, make decisions in his own secret counsel, his heart is unsearchable. So to hear that the heart of the king was in the Lord's hand was to demonstrate to the people of that time that God himself was the Almighty One who even controls the acts and decisions of those who wield supreme power over the lives of all people within their land. Solomon teaches that the mightiest of men upon the earth are so small and so insignificant in comparison to the sovereignty and power of the Lord that they are like a little harmless ant in one of our hands that moves this direction. We take our finger, we move it the next direction, we move it that direction, and move it wherever we want it in our hands. You can consider one of the mightiest kings of the ancient world. And how this truth is made so clear in Daniel chapter 4, where we find King Nebuchadnezzar there exalting himself in his majesty and in his glory, what he himself has accomplished in building Babylon and making it such a great city and a, such a great nation. <coughs> and the Lord humbled Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord brought him low by giving him the mind of a beast and Nebuchadnezzar being forced out of his kingdom, out of his throne, off of his throne to, to go about in the fields under the dew of heaven for seven times. Most commentators view that as a period of seven years in which he was separated from his kingdom and from his throne behaving like an animal, having lost his mind. That rational ability to think and to reason. God took it from him. And he wandered around aimlessly, purposelessly, seemingly hopelessly. And then God gave to Nebuchadnezzar his mind again. Gave to him and restored to him his power his majesty, 
his throne unto him. And the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar is given to us in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, where he says, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? The mightiest king of the earth met up with the living God, and it was no match. What are some necessary implications of God's sovereign rule over all things? Let me give to you a couple with some other, other ideas under these two implications. The first is this. God is sovereign as evidenced by the fact that he created all things that exist. Because God is the creator of all things, God is sovereign over all things. We see in John chapter 1, verse 3, that the Word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, created all things that exist. And without Him, nothing came into being that has come into being, apart from His creation. He who has created all things out of nothing by the mere spoken Word must also be able to rule all that he has created, according to Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, where we find these words. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as in heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. You know, as the more we learn of the vastness of this universe, the complexity of the human body, <coughs> the power in a single atom, we are brought face to face with the might and the power of the Almighty God, who created by his word all that we see and all even that we cannot see. Namely, the spiritual world, the angels, the angelic beings. And created them all in the space of six 24-hour days, according to Genesis chapter 1. Paul teaches in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that the Son of God who created all things is the very one who also upholds all things by the word of his power. Dear ones, it is not mere impersonal laws that hold our universe together and keep it running in such an orderly fashion. It is the very power of God that sustains order in this universe and in our world and in your life rather than chaos. Otherwise, our universe would cease, would immediately cease with billions upon billions of catastrophic explosions from atoms racing headlong into one another if God did not hold and bring together and uphold by his mighty power all of his creation. A second implication is this. God sovereignly rules according to his most holy will. Psalm 145 verse 17 
clearly teaches us the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Dear ones, as a pastor, I have heard questions like this many times. If God is righteous and controls all things, why did my baby die? Why must I uh, uh, suffer so much pain and heartache? Why must I die such a slow, agonizing death? Why are my children, who were raised in a Christian home, rebelling against me and rebelling against everything that I have taught them? Why did my spouse leave me for someone else? Why did I lose my job? Why do little children around the world starve to death from famine and drought? Why the savage slaughter of so many people in wars? And we can go on by asking those questions of why, why, why? Well, the skeptic responds to these questions by saying, either God is sovereign or he's righteous, but he cannot be both. For it is not righteous to permit evil and suffering if he could prevent such calamities. And if God would like to prevent them but can't, then he's not sovereign. Then he's not all-powerful. Well, dear ones, this is mere human sophistry. That is, this is just a vain and subtle argument, a deceptive, uh, deceptive argument of man. For the Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign and yet is absolutely holy. He is not, dear ones, the author of sin and does not physically or morally force man to sin. James chapter 1 tells us that God does not tempt anyone, nor is he himself tempted by sin. Man sins because he wants to sin. Yes, God could have indeed prevented the fall of man, God could prevent all sin if he chose to do so. He could prevent the misery and the curse that, that fell upon the earth originally, bringing death, bringing destruction, bringing every misery known to man, including that final misery, the lake of fire, had he willed to do so. But he decreed, dear ones, the fall of man, permitting man to follow his own lustful desire in order to glorify his justice in righteously punishing man for his sinful rebellion and in order to glorify his grace in rescuing ungodly sinners from sin, death, and the lake of fire. God would seek to glorify himself in everything that occurs in heaven upon earth and under the earth. Dear ones, if all we see is our suffering or the suffering of others today, we are not considering that which is even more important, namely the glory of God. Remember what Moses was told in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. There Moses was told by God when he complained that he was slow of speech or slow of tongue 
that he didn't have the ability naturally to speak to Pharaoh the message of God. We find in Exodus 4.11, God saying, The Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth, or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind, have not I the Lord. God is saying in this particular passage that he even glorifies himself through these physical infirmities that come into man's life. In Amos chapter 3, verse 6, the Lord says there that if there is evil in the city, has not the Lord himself called it forth? If there is calamity, Calvin says, by these words, the prophet reminds us that calamities happen, not by chance, as the vulgar of mankind believe, but the prophet here shows that the government of this world is administered by God and that nothing happens except through his power. We remember in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 3, a man who was born blind. And the disciples asked, did this man sin or did his parents that he was born blind? And God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ says, neither but that the works of God might be manifested in him, that God might glorify himself even through this man's affliction. Yes, dear ones, we must be kind and compassionate when others suffer. But if we are to help relieve the suffering, we must realize if we were to help those who do suffer, if we are to truly comfort those who are suffering, that we cannot simply focus upon their suffering. We must seek to turn their attention to the glory of God that is to be realized through their suffering. For that is ultimately the purpose for all things that occur, is the glory of God. Romans 8, verse 28, is certainly a precious promise to those who are Christians in this light. <clears throat> and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. There was the comfort of the Christian is not simply in knowing that God is sovereign. For if God were infinitely evil instead of infinitely holy and good, there could be no comfort in knowing that God was sovereign. Such a fact would only bring us to utter despair and hopelessness, but the truth that God sovereignly rules for His own righteous glory and for the good of His people is one of the most comforting truths in all of Scripture. This is what we fall back on, that God is not only sovereign, but He is good he is kind. He is merciful to his people. Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says to his brethren, brethren, after Jacob has died, with regard to them selling him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to preserve all of these people. We find in Acts 2 verse 23 
a most remarkable truth, which as well speaks to the fact that God is not only sovereign, and that God not only takes that which is the sin of man, but he even uses the sin of man to glorify himself, and this is supremely realized in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ where we read in Acts 2, verse 23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. That which was perhaps the most heinous sin ever committed by man in putting the Son of God to death was the means by which the Lord God had chosen to save His people. Dear ones, God causes even the wrath of man to praise him. This is how great and mighty the God whom we serve. And this, in fact, forms the very basis for our comfort according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. There you'll recall that the Apostle Paul says, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If the Lord God delivered up his own son and put his own son to be our surety, to step into our place, to bear the wrath and the infinite justice of God which we deserve, if God went to those those. Uh, Extent, or to that extent, in, in His sovereign plan, how much more will He not now show us His blessings through all that occurs and happens in our lives? How will He not give to us freely all good things if He has now even turned His Son into the sacrifice for our sin? Dear ones, even when you pass through the valley of the shadow of death, even when you suffer afflictions in this life or lose those whom you love, you can know with certainty that He will never leave you nor forsake you for all that comes your way has the evil of it removed by the redeeming love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is all for your good, every bit of it. There was a time in, in my youth and early adulthood in which I foolishly resisted the precious and comforting doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty over all of my life and over all of His creation. I wanted to protect my own sovereignty and my lordship over my own life and the life of my loved ones. I thought I could do a better job than God Himself. I blasphemously believed I could govern my life better than an absolutely holy, good, and merciful God. But that same God broke my stubborn pride and my obstinacy and brought me to see that I am nothing and can do nothing apart from that sovereign God. That I live not for my own glory and for my own honor, but for the glory and honor of Him who powerfully created me and mercifully redeemed me from the guilt, power, and the condemnation of my own sin. 
the Lord took me to Romans chapter 9 and showed me the vanity and the futility of my alleged sovereignty over my own life or my supposed righteousness I thought I had. The Lord reduced me to the dust of the ground and then, by His grace, He made of me something beautiful in His own time, growing me, causing me to understand more and more how to depend upon Him, how to lean upon Him, how to trust upon Him and His righteousness and His power. And all of us are in that process now. We're not perfect. We have not come to perfectly understand or to perfectly uh, exercise by faith what is true, what we understand to be true. But nevertheless, God is working beautifully and marvelously in the lives of those who have been called by His amazing grace. And so we see, dear ones, not only are we comforted as Christians by knowing with certainty that the God who loves us from everlasting to everlasting is absolutely sovereign, but we are also humbled before Him. We're humbled before Him to ask, why, why me? Why has Thy love and sovereign power raised me from spiritual death to embrace Christ alone for my eternal salvation? Why me and not that one? Why me when so many will perish and go to hell? Why did Thou set Thy love, Thy redeeming love and Thy sovereign power upon me to raise me from the dead spiritually? You know, that question, if it continues to resound in your heart, if it continues to be asked daily, it will have the effect of humbling you and of humbling me as we continue earnestly to ask that question, why me? Because the answer really is simply, it was of God's good pleasure. It was of God's good pleasure, of His holy and righteous will, of His sovereign power that He brought this about in your life and in mine. Dear ones, won't you humble yourself with me this day under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt us. The second main point is this, and it's a question again, how far does God's control extend? How far? Our text in Proverbs 21.1 states that God's absolute power over the king and thus all men is like the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. This is an illustration from the realm of husbandry or farming. Since farmers in the days of Solomon did not have automated sprinkling systems, or electric pumps to bring water to the dry fields, they depended upon rain and upon other water sources, such as rivers or streams or lakes or ponds, to provide water for their crops. And either they would, would trench in from those water sources uh, an irrigation trench, or they would carry uh, in buckets water and pour it into an irrigation trench so as to water their fields and their crops. And when a particular trench had served its purpose in watering that particular line of crops, a row of crops for which it was designed, the farmer would put either a piece of wood, a stone, 
soil or perhaps even his own foot in the way so as to divert that water to another row so as to water the next row and so on and so on from that main water source. Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 10 actually gives us an example of that very thing where it speaks of comparing the land of Egypt from where they came to the promised land. God says you won't have to uh, anymore put your foot in the trench. You won't have to divert water because I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey and I'm going to provide rain and dew from heaven to water your land if you'll follow me if you'll obey me, if you'll be my covenant people and love me with all of your heart, I will provide these things for you. You see, dear, when Solomon says that just as the farmer so easily moves the water flowing through these small trenches in the direction which he desires it to go, the Lord so easily exercises his absolute sovereignty in moving the very hearts of kings to do whatever he wills to be done for his own glory. The key phrase here, dear ones, is whithersoever he will. That is, wherever it pleases God, God turns the heart of the king. There are no boundaries in this verse placed upon the sovereignty of God if he can so powerfully control the lives of men that he may turn them whichever direction he desires for his own holy purposes. No boundaries, no limitations upon God's power, but his own holy will and desire that he would, that he would seek to accomplish. As the scripture so clearly teaches, dear ones, even the wicked unwittingly accomplish in their sin the very purposes of God. You'll remember that even the Assyrian kings in Isaiah 10, verse 7, the Lord says, fulfill the purposes of God unwittingly. They didn't know what they were doing and why they were doing it. God had directed them to bring Israel into captivity. They were fulfilling. They were simply the rod of God's anger, of God's punishment, fulfilling God's purposes but doing so, I guess they said, unwittingly. The same is true of those who put Christ to death. They fulfilled the purposes of God unwittingly in putting Christ to death. They are responsible and they're guilty for their sin, but nevertheless fulfilled the divine purposes of a sovereign God in bringing salvation to his people. The Lord, dear ones, even turned the heart of King Cyrus and King Artaxerxes to return captive Israel to her homeland and even to supply the materials, the treasures, and all that they needed to rebuild the temple of the one true living God we find in Ezra and in Nehemiah. And you know, dear ones, that truth there encourages us that God will yet do so again. That God will again cause magistrates, civil magistrates throughout the world to be nursing fathers. He, by his sovereign power in the day of his power, will raise up those who will direct from the civil realm a godly reformation and will bring about and promote the knowledge of the truth through ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the whole world. 
This inspired proverb, dear ones, teaches rulers that they do not have absolute authority and power, sovereignty over a nation, but rather they rule by God's decree. Therefore, rulers are to fear such a holy and almighty God rather than turning their backs upon him or acting as if they are the sovereign of the nation. For rulers only set themselves up for destruction who do not kiss the sun and officially honor the Son of God and rule according to the revealed will of God. That's found in Scripture. They deceive and fool themselves if they think they are able to escape a sovereign God. For the Lord yet sovereignly turns their sinful hearts to fulfill His holy purposes, even when they intend not to do so. God is accomplishing His purposes. Even in our country today, by all the wickedness that we see, God is accomplishing His purposes and there is our hope. There is our comfort that the heathen, vain as they are in their imaginations, thinking to conspire together to break the, the bonds and the yoke which God has placed upon them, God laughs at them. God says, you're foolish, thinking that you can accomplish your desires and that I have nothing to say about it. You're stupid. Beloved, how can we possibly lose if the Almighty God so tenderly loves us and provides We may have besetting sins. We may have and suffer from various afflictions. We may lose loved ones. We may lose our job, our health, our wealth, or our liberty, but we are certain... Dear ones, we are certain of this thing, that our loving Father takes nothing away that He does not more than replace with something so much better that is of His grace and of His mercy in building His character within us. If God takes something from us, He's got something better for us. Because He's a God who only gives us that which is good. He is sovereign in all that He does. Dear ones, when we serve a sovereign God who loves us so, there is nothing, nothing at all that's insignificant in our lives. No detail that passes God's notice. Everything, therefore, because God is sovereign and because He loves us with an everlasting love, everything has meaning. Everything in our lives is significant. There are no details in God's plan. We therefore have hope rather than hopelessness. It is hopelessness of those who believe that man is in control, that no one is in control, or that Satan is in control. That is hopelessness, meaninglessness, and purposelessness. We therefore, dear ones, as God's people, have much, much hope. A sovereign God as I close today, a sovereign God should cause the ungodly or those who are in rebellion against Him to literally shake in their boots. For such an absolutely sovereign God is against you. You cannot prevail against Him. He will crush you as an enemy, as an enemy of His holiness and of His justice and of His righteousness. There is nowhere to hide from a sovereign God. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. 
But you who are the children of the living God, who trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation and seek to show him your love for his kindness and mercy to you through your obedience to his good commandments, let the power and sovereignty of God not bring you to despair, but let the sovereignty of God encourage your hearts. Do not become weary in doing good and in, preserve, in persevering in what is righteous, for your sovereign God will cause you to reap in due time if you faint not. He will cause you to reap forth many blessings. I ask you today, dear ones, what are your true needs in this life? Are they material? Are they spiritual? What are they? Your sovereign God, who is able and willing to supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, will meet those needs. You have his promise. He is powerful. He is sovereign. He is able to do so. And he has promised to do so. For with God, the angel Gabriel said to, to, to uh, uh, Mary, for with God nothing shall be impossible. Even in conceiving a child without a human father, nothing will be impossible. What are your fears today? What are your fears? Whatever your fears may be, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, we are encouraged again with the promise of God. Not to look to ourselves, but rather we are encouraged. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. That comes from confidence in the sovereignty of God, that God is all-powerful. But not only that he is all-powerful, but that he loves you with an everlasting love and he can never do you ill or harm. Dear ones, the arm of flesh will fail you, but the sovereign God of the Bible will never fail you. For he loves you, as we have said, from everlasting to everlasting. The question, therefore, as we close, is not so much how big is your faith, but how big is your God. For even the faith of a mustard seed in a sovereign God can move mountains. Our God is sovereign. Let us worship Him. He is holy. Let us worship Him. He is merciful and gracious to us, His people. Let us worship Him. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this day we do glorify Thee. We do enjoy Thee. We do praise Thee and are comforted by Thy Word that Thou art the eternal the everlasting, the sovereign God, full of love and mercy and kindness to thy people. And Lord our God, we bow before thee and we do acknowledge, Father, that thou alone art deserving of our worship. And we do praise thee for having given to us such clear testimony from thy word this day. We thank thee, Father, that thou hast turned us from our rebellion and resistance to this truth and has brought us to acknowledge and to confess and to live out, O Lord, this truth. But Father, we confess that due to our own sin, we do not practice this truth as we ought. And we pray that Thou would forgive us 
Thou would grant to us, O Lord, day by day, more and more the ability to wait upon Thee, because Thou art sovereign. When things do not go as we had planned, to wait upon Thee, for Thou art sovereign. Thou hast a plan for our life, even in our waiting. And even when, O Lord, our God, those calamities befall us, O Lord, Thou hast a plan, Thou art sovereign. Therefore, our Father, we pray that Thou would cast us not upon the arm of flesh, but upon the arm of our God. We ask, Lord, these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.